0: I'm Keegan and I'm Madigan and you're listening to your angry Angry neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our
1: own personal feminist perspectives.
0: Huh. Alrighty. So we just had like a full
1: half hour therapy set. I was gonna say we just had therapy. Um, Keegs and I are struggling today. Um, I got on FaceTime and told her, hey, I've been crying all day. And she said, hey, I've been crying all day. Uh, So we've both been not feeling so great. But uh, luckily, I mean, at least for me, this is a good way for me to get my mind off of whatever my troubles are or the thing that is eating away at me. And always makes me feel a bit better. So,
0: yeah, yeah. And like I was saying to you, because I know we like really hesitated on getting started on recording because every little thing feels like it's going to set us off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I feel like that's okay because I feel like. A lot of people are really struggling right now. Yeah, um, we've been in this thing, especially us here in California and in other states that have been closed down or have been hit really hard, particularly hard. Um, we've been in this place for almost a year, yeah. and all of a lot of our normal coping mechanisms have been taken from us. A lot mm-hmm. of our support has been taken from us. Yeah, we can't and go out and get drinks with our girls <laughs> or anything. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a struggle. It's, rough. it's hard. And so I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. So if we, if, if, if the energy from us feels a little bit different today, that's why. I we, have a feeling.
1: Know? So we, uh, for those of you that don't know, like the behind the scenes of like our I guess, schedule for recording. We usually do our mini episode first, and then we do our full length, and we do it in one night. Uh, When we first started recording, we would have issues where like the mini wouldn't work, and then we had to have it up by the next day, and it was a whole thing. But I was thinking that tonight it might be a good idea to start with the full-length episode, something that's not as involved with current affairs. And maybe, I'm hoping halfway through the episode... Um, I'll hear my voice go up a little bit, and I'll yeah. feel a little bit more alive. So I'm hoping that I already this feel is a the little remedy. bit better. So good. Well, I always feel better when I have my my check ins because you know it's nice when I talk to Max or my mom or things like that. But they're dealing with my shit day in and day out. So there is something nice about talking to somebody else that you don't talk to as often and just kind of getting validation for how you feel and things like that. So
0: yeah, absolutely. Always good to talk well, to a friend. This week, we are going to be talking about uh, First Ladies. Yeah. So, um, I know typically we do these feminist faves as forgotten feminist faves. Mine is certainly not. I know
1: exactly who you're doing that because I... I did like a day's worth of like I basically did a ton of notes like the first day that I told you that I wanted to do that. We were going to do this topic or when we decided and I was like, please don't have her pick this person. And then I literally like I sent you a text just kind of giving you a hint. And immediately I was like, she's going to be doing Jackie O. No, (gasps) no, I was wrong.
0: I am going to be doing Michelle Obama. Oh, okay, that was my second <laughs> guess, but
1: I I don't know why, but in my head I was like, I feel like, at, maybe it's because I did Kennedy recently. I was like, I feel like Keegan's going to give us Jackie O, but I was wrong. Michelle Obama, though, A-plus decision. Well,
0: you know, I feel like Jackie O and Michelle Obama are two... First Lady style icons. Yes, I would actually definitely. put them up as like the top two. Oh, yeah. Style Definitely. Icons. definitely. So they've got some stuff in common for sure. And um, I think Jackie O is Interesting, and definitely would love to cover her, yeah, especially yeah. her later life post-Kennedy. Yeah. Uh,
1: I would be very interested in learning
0: more about.
1: I watched a documentary about Jackie and her sister, I think on Netflix. It wasn't like an amazing documentary or anything. It was actually kind of boring, but it was fascinating because it talked more about like um, – her relationship with her sister, who uh, I guess also was kind of supposed to be something. And I don't know. There was always this competition between the two and things like that. So that was kind of interesting to get to know her on more like a personal level in that way, because there's so much about her, like redoing the White House and all of that. So but I want to hear you tell me more about Michelle Obama.
0: Well, first of all, I can't let that pass without saying how shitty it would be to be
1: Jackie O's sister. Let me just tell you like, oh, my God. That would yeah. be so hard. I any, always think about things like that. Any celebrities' sibling, and I know a few of them, it's going to suck. It's going to suck when they're yeah. like that huge. I don't know. It would be rough. Yeah, for sure. Um, but
0: OK, let's talk Michelle. So I watched the Becoming documentary on Netflix. <gasps> I highly recommend it. I greatly enjoyed it. It follows her tour for her book, yes, uh, and provides just a lot of insight into her life, both
1: past and present. i watched and i definitely f- I watched the first maybe like forty minutes of it one day and then I had to stop it and I never I, I forgot to finish it, so I gotta do that.
0: <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It was nice to see her on that very personal level. yeah, she's um, so chill. Yeah, she seems she seems very genuine. Yeah. And I realize that people can fake that, but it doesn't feel like it's fake.
1: (laughs) You know, it feels like the people. Yeah, I was actually writing something about Michelle Obama as part of a job application. And I referred to her as like America's mom. Like she kind of has that like mom and supportive wife vibe with her family, especially when we first met her back in like 2008 or when, you know, the whole country met her in 2008. And then when she became first lady, you know, her whole like, I know you're gonna talk about this, but like, you know, the let's move initiative and all that kind of stuff. I feel like she kind of became like motherly to the American public in a way
0: yeah absolutely and I really do feel like the relationships that she has with like her staff and the people in her life like her chief of staff like they genuinely seem like good friends like beyond it being kind of like a boss employee relationship and the same with like her secret service member like he was talking in the documentary it was so cute where he was you know talking they went somewhere and there was this giant slide I think that they were in China uh, and there was this giant slide and the girls wanted to go down the slide and then when they got there Michelle decided she also wanted to go down the slide so he's got this picture um, in his office that's Michelle going down the slide and then he had to go too because he's her secret service oh my agent. gosh, so behind her on the slide and it's, it's really cute and he has it framed in his office oh. he obviously
1: cherishes that relationship You know? that's like that's gotta be a fascinating job like I want to hear those stories. Like I want to. I want to read the books written by Secret Service people that are like specifically for certain politicians. Like I bet yeah. that the stories they could tell would just be phenomenal. Well,
0: I think you learn a lot about a person. Who was the Who was the Secret Service... or not Secret Service? Who was the president after JFK? Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Right. Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. There was talk i think it was lyndon b johnson i will look and correct myself next week if this isn't the case Uh um but i'm pretty sure like he his secret service person um described once that like he was lyndon b johnson was talking to somebody and had to pee and like didn't want to stop what he was doing so he like made his
1: secret service person get in front of him and like peed on him like a tree so My God! Or you can be like Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, and like not let your Secret Service use your bathroom. Oh my God! I read that story this <laughs> week. Horrible! Oh my Horrible. God! Uh,
0: okay. Yeah. So well, you can anyway. tell
1: you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat other people, and definitely 100%. like if you're in a position of power, and you are treating the people that you work with. I mean, I've worked in so many people's homes that are nowhere near the status of Michelle Obama who act like they are Michelle Obama, and the fact that she acts so normal I guess quote unquote is I think one of the most refreshing things about her
0: absolutely me too so I definitely want to read her book uh, Mm -hmm. as well I have some
1: audible credits so I think I'm going to just (gasps) get it on audible actually Uh, I do I'm gonna do that too because is she narrating it I want to say yes like I almost said that but I'm not entirely sure, but I want to say she is. I bet there's at least a version where she is narrating if it's not the audible version. Yeah, I I gotta look into it. I gotta do it.
0: Me too. But I, especially after watching this documentary, definitely want to read the book now. I definitely want to get to know her even better. Yeah. So um, Michelle LaVon Robinson, and this was another thing that I found when reading articles about her. I'm pretty sure that legally she kept her made a name as a middle name so she's like Michelle LaVon Robinson Obama oh that's which I kind of love yeah
1: it's a it's a last name that could easily be used as a middle name I don't know if Haggerty would work not that I would want it as my middle name but like I don't think that would sound good as a nickname I could I could totally picture your last name being a middle name
0: yeah, I mean, the more time goes on, the more I actually think I'm not going to change my last
1: name. I think I'm just going <laughs> to keep You've been pushing it. the wedding too far. Now you're like, I'm changing my mind, Anthony.
0: <laughs> just keeping my last name. Um, but she was born on January 17th, 1964. Her birthday's uh, coming in- up. It is coming up, yeah, in Chicago, Illinois, uh, to Frazier Fraser Robinson III, who is a city water plant employee and also a Democratic precinct captain. And from what I read, um, the precinct captain is basically a liaison between the party and the voters. Mm. So responsibilities for that would include um, facilitating voter registration and absentee ballot access, uh, leading a get the vote outreach efforts and um, distributing campaign and party literature very and cool. also just like promote promoting the party so uh, she kind of grew up a little bit you know with a little bit of that yeah her mom her mom's name is marion shields robinson and she is in the documentary she's adorable <laughs> she was a secretary at spiegel's catalog store although when Michelle was growing up, she was a full-time stay-at-home mom mm-hmm. until Michelle went to high school. So her family, although, you know, you have a little bit of politics kind of like in her in her dad yeah. being a d- precinct captain, her family was very solidly working class, mm-hmm. and they were from Chicago's south side. So she went to predominantly black schools, but... Her family were high achievers. She describes in the documentary how her grandpa strived for excellence and pushed his grandchildren to do the same. And that he was frustrated by the roadblocks that he had experienced growing up because of racism. And he wanted his children to take advantage of all the opportunities that they had that he wasn't able to have. Yeah. So I don't think he lived to see what became of his granddaughter. But I'm sure if he had, it would have been incredible for him to oh, see yeah, that she a was a great payoff. Yeah, yeah. Mhm. So, Michelle was able, and this is just kind of like a a bonus interesting thing, Mm -hmm. Michelle was able to trace her lineage pretty far back um, and has great-great-grandparents on both sides that were born into slavery, and I just think it's important to point out so that we don't lose sight of the fact that this was someone who was a descendant of slaves um, or enslaved people and that she was able to accomplish these things and become such an iconic member of not only the first family, but also... Just like she's part of the American zeitgeist. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a good thing to always put into perspective too that. It's really not as long ago as I think we all like to believe it is. You know, if you're able to trace back that lineage and be able to see where you're from, it does it does bring everything a little bit closer to home to the people today that love her,
0: you know? Absolutely. I mean, she says it in the documentary. What she says is, my grandparents' grandparents were slaves. Yeah. And when you put it into that kind of perspective, it's I mean, wild. think about... If you think about, like, if I think about my grandparents and I think about them knowing their grandparents yeah. and having the kind of relationship with them that maybe I have to my grandparents, like, and knowing that they were born into
1: slavery, it's wild. yeah, Wild. Yeah. yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's a completely, it's a completely different life. A completely different life than, like, any of my ancestors. You know, I had Irish ancestors come and French and Czech and all that kind of stuff. But the experience of having such drastic changes through the generations and not that many is a is a pretty powerful uh, it's a pretty powerful thing and it it probably has affected her life and her family's life more than maybe she realizes I don't know Yeah,
0: yeah yeah absolutely So, Michelle's brother, Craig, is only 21 months older than her, and she claims that he was always the family favorite, and in some ways, this pushed her harder to achieve. They seem to have a very loving relationship. He calls her mish. Like, they have a kind of, like, ribbing, loving relationship. Yeah. But I, I totally get that. Like, when you have a you know family member who seems whether perceived or not seems to be kind of like the favorite and is very smart and an overachiever it can make you go one of two ways like you can either strive to also you know kind of follow in those footsteps or you know you resent them
1: yeah so resent that go the other way only child here do you feel like your parents had a favorite was that ever something that you Um, thought when you were a kid Because I always knew I was my parents' favorite or least favorite, depending on the day, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's kind of interesting because my brother and I are 11 months apart, Mm -hmm. and then there's like a 10-year gap, and then my two little brothers are 20 months apart. Right. So I think dynamics totally changed from whenever we, like, my older brother and I were kids, because we were only kids.
1: It was just the two of us for so long. But you never felt like your brother was maybe, like, preferred... Or anything like that?
0: No. In fact, if I had to say, I would say...
1: It was you? I would have been. (laughs) You totally were. I've seen pictures of you as a kid. You were the cutest damn thing I've ever... I mean, you still are, but my God, can (laughs) you get as a child? Get out of town. Thank you so much. Of course you were the favorite. I mean, you and your brother were like twins, though. I'm not going to lie.
0: We we just had very – still do have very different personalities. I'm an extrovert. He's an introvert. I'm an artistic person. He's an analytical person. Um, but even then, I mean, siblings are just weird like that where, like, yeah. even though I may have felt like the favorite sometimes with my parents, he was the smart one. Yeah. So much smarter than me. Um, and that can – Cause insecurity, like always totally. trying to be like
1: as good as the other person. Definitely, you know? definitely. Sorry, I, I love asking these questions because, again, only child, don't know, have yeah, no idea. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so interesting to me, too.
1: You being an only child. Uh, yeah, it's I don't wild. Have that at all.
0: <laughs> um, but her brother ended up graduating high school and, and going to Princeton. And so Michelle wanted to follow in his footsteps. And when she spoke to her guidance counselor at her high school, This woman discouraged her and basically told her that she didn't think she was, quote, Princeton material. Mm. And while she, you know, persevered and um, eventually did make it to Princeton, she did say that the experience hurt her. Like she obviously carried with
1: it her whole life. I mean, honestly, I think that would make me stop applying to Princeton. I really do like I think that if a teacher I had an experience with the guidance counselor telling me that I would be a delivery driver one day essentially like just was horrible to me and you believe that stuff when you're young so the fact that she was able to like not listen to that person who was being so negative and you know go get to Princeton I wouldn't have done that there's no way
0: (laughs) right well also disclaimer not that there's anything wrong with being a delivery driver <laughs> just that yeah. like you were going in for advice for something else you had different pursuits oh and i would to have somebody yeah shoot down your
1: dreams yeah. is kind of fucked up yeah yeah it was it was like a college chat it's like well your grades suck so you're basically gonna be nothing and i was like thanks <laughs> wow yeah it was fun So the experience that she had with this guidance
0: counselor was kind of something that she took with her later in life. And it became a huge part of why she wanted to do so much youth outreach uh, as she got older. And once she was within the White House, it became a big part of who she was wanting to, like, mentor kids. Right. And make sure that they felt like they had every opportunity to do anything they wanted.
1: Definitely. Definitely.
0: So she she entered Princeton in 1981, and she majored in sociology and minored in African American studies. Mm. And during her time there, one of her roommates actually moved out because her mother discovered that her daughter had a black roommate (gasps) and was horrified. Um, And actually, I think Michelle used the words like she thought I was dangerous. Yeah. Oh, my God. Michelle had never experienced anything like that. Like she had grown up in very integrated schools, if not predominantly black schools. So this was a a very strange experience for her.
1: Yeah. And a very extreme reaction. Again, something very, very hurtful that I feel like I would have a very hard time moving past. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think that she
0: definitely is a what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type. Like she learns from these things and builds
1: on it. And her whole thing is like when you go low, I'll go high. You know what I mean? Like it's just clear that that's how she's always lived. Yeah. So she describes discovering
0: um, that all of these things like Princeton and other Ivy League schools that black people had been told for so long weren't for them, weren't actually all that special. So she got this incredible education, yes, but the people themselves weren't as smart or special as she was expecting or as they kind of promote themselves to be. Right. Like they're They're so incredible because they went to these Ivy League schools. She says in the documentary, quote, there are all kinds of affirmative action. There's legacy, the college athlete. Universities have a right and an interest in diversifying. The problem is that when it comes to students of color, poor kids, all of a sudden that's affirmative action and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And I liked that she said that because I feel like people look down on affirmative action if they feel like you got somewhere because of affirmative action. When in reality, this kind of thing has always existed. Like, do you really think that George W. Bush was smart enough to go to an Ivy League school. It's like, no, no that was it was legacy. It yes. was a different kind of affirmative action. You uh-huh. know? Exactly. While at Princeton, Michelle became involved in the Third World Center, uh, an academic and cultural group that supported minority students. And she ran their daycare center. So you really see this like thread of loving kids throughout Definitely. her life. Um, and she also offered after-school tutoring for the older kids. She ended up graduating cum laude with a Bachelor of Arts in 1985 after completing a 99-page senior thesis titled Princeton Educated Blacks and the Black Community. Oh, shit. Yes, she researched her thesis by sending a questionnaire to African-American graduates of Princeton asking that they specify when and how comfortable they were with their race prior to their enrollment at Princeton and how they felt about it when they were a student and since then. Wow. And what was interesting was she sent it out to like, I didn't write it down, but she sent it out to like 400 students Uh and only got like 70 back. Wow. And this enforced to her that like, she felt like a lot of African American Ivy League students were trying to distance themselves from their blackness.
1: Yeah, um,
0: didn't really want to kind
1: of like participate examine it. in something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really good point.
0: Yeah, so she ended up going to Harvard Law School in eight. Uh, wow,
1: well, in eighteen in what?
0: <laughs> in eighteen eighty eight. <1888. laughs> <laughs> in 1988, and at Harvard, she participated in demonstrations advocating the hiring of professors who were members of minority groups. And she worked, and she worked for the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, which assisted low-income tenants with housing cases. And then, after graduating from Harvard, she went on to work at Sidley Austin LLP, which is a law firm. And this is where she met Barack Obama. Oh, so Barry. she was <laughs> Barry. And she describes him. She's like, I, you know, saw his picture. Like, I knew who I was going to be working with. And I was already annoyed because he showed up late. But then he started speaking and he has that, like, Barack Obama voice. And she's like, oh... He's not this nerdy guy that I thought, yeah. like, from his picture. Oh, he's actually and kind
1: of, like, competent and charming. And I would feel the same way. Like, I am all about being punctual. So if somebody is late, like, you are off to a really bad start with me. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that just mm-hmm. kind of shows you the power of the Barack Obama voice. Yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> so she was actually assigned to mentor him. He was a summer associate, and she was his mentor. Wow. And yeah, they started working together and kind of started liking each other. But she was like, we can't date each other because like, what's it going to say if it's like the only two black people mm. start dating? It's like everyone expects it. Yeah, like, we, we shouldn't do it. But of course they did. And their first date was actually to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Oh, <laughs> they went Oh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. My
1: gosh, what perfect. a perfect first date mm-hmm. for Michelle mm-hmm. and Barack Obama. What a great movie. Great, yeah, movie. for sure.
0: So she describes their relationship as one where they challenged each other. So he forced her to up her game and she did the same for him. And she says that until this point she was what she calls a box ticker. So she was just ticking the boxes, Mm -hmm. right? Like doing all the things in life that she felt like she had to do to be perceived as successful. So she graduated high school with high marks, goes to a prestigious university, becomes a lawyer. Um, And after this, she really started to reevaluate kind of like what her priorities were and what she actually wanted to do and who she wanted to be. So, Barack and Michelle got married on October third, 1992, and they lived together on the south side of Chicago. For a year, they even lived in Michelle's childhood home, like oh, family cool. home. Yeah. Yeah. So after suffering a miscarriage, I didn't know this. Yeah. So she, she suffered a miscarriage, and then she had to go through in vitro fertilization to conceive their daughters, oh. Malia and Natasha, who goes by Sasha. I did not know that. Me neither. Had no idea. Uh, after Barack was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2004, the couple decided to continue living in Chicago rather than move to Washington, D.C., as they felt it was just better for their daughters to mm-hmm. stay in Chicago. And even when Barack's campaign started in 2007, they remained in Chicago with Michelle committing to only being away from home two nights or two days and one night a week. Wow. So they were like, she'd go away campaign, spend a night, campaign the next day, and then come home. That's awesome. Because she's like, I wanted to be home for my girls. Yeah. So she describes herself as someone who, quote, hates politics. (laughs) And so she absolutely hated campaigning she wasn't ready for all the vitriol her and barack would receive on the public stage and um this was an absolutely wild thing and i forgot that this had happened but after winning the 2008 democratic nomination michelle introduces her husband on stage and then when she's passing the mic off to him she gives him like a fist bump like you got this oh yeah yeah Right wing media lost their fucking <laughs> minds, lost their minds. Edie Hill of Fox News went so far as to call it a terrorist fist jab. What? Yes, she actually ended up losing. She got fired from Fox News well, for that, which good. goes to show you how far Fox News has come because they wouldn't fire no. someone for saying that today. Has anyone but-
1: watched Tucker Carlson
0: ever? <laughs> like, right, exactly. Um, but that's what they were facing. I mean, people called him Obama Bin Laden. Um, oh yeah, there were signs well, there was that- so.
1: I mean, I was just watching CNN before we were recording, and Don Lemon was talking about Trump. You know, kind of still stoking the conspiracy that Barack wasn't born in the United States and like the racist Uh rhetoric behind it. I mean, that couple faced so much racism when they first came into like the public eye absolutely and michelle
0: herself was very harshly criticized she always kind of spoke her mind she spoke off the cuff oftentimes in yeah. the beginning of the campaign not really reading from teleprompters just kind of saying what she wanted and she quickly learned that she couldn't do that anymore at the campaign rallies because people took everything that she said out of context they scrutinized it they nitpicked it um that's such and a frustrating way to live Yeah, absolutely. And they just, they didn't know what to do with her. She was highly educated. She was articulate. She was opinionated and she was black. And this was not anything that we were used to seeing uh, in a presidential campaign at all. I mean, she is the most educated first lady that we've ever had. I mean, the only two first ladies other than Michelle Obama who have, um, gone on beyond a bachelor's degree i believe are hillary clinton and laura bush wow so it, it well, was a and big soon, soon
1: to be jill biden right yes and then soon yeah yes. i believe so because yes, she got a phd, PhD. duh okay mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> she's a doctor <laughs>
0: which would say i mean correct me if i'm wrong but then that would make her the most educated first lady i think so yeah so um there was a fox news columnist cal thomas he even went so far as to describe Michelle on air as an angry black woman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it was just like, it; she couldn't do anything no. right. Once they did get into the White House, though, once Barack won the campaign, she changed the dress code for the butlers who were mostly black and Latino men from wearing full tuxedos every day. I guess up until that point, the butlers in the White House wore full tuxedos. It might be back to that with the Trumps. I don't know.
1: Oh, They're probably like in gold encrusted tuxedos or something <laughs> just for aesthetic sake. thats That sounds like torture to me. Like that actually sounds horrible well, to have to be in a tux at work yeah. every
0: day. And that's kind of what she was saying. Like she's got her kids like having pool parties running around in the summer and these guys are walking around in tuxedos. And she was describing that like she'd had family members who in like the 50s and the 40s and 50s were Pullman porters who had to kind of like dress like that. Yeah. Um, And she didn't want her daughters to see... These like black and brown men serving them in tuxedos, yeah. Like it it's just weird. felt icky to her. Totally. So what well, was one of the first things that she did was change that dress code. So what could and they wear? Also
1: like cargo shorts I don't know and what, t-shirts. I didn't,
0: I didn't see what she changed it to. I should look that up. Um But she also instructed the housekeepers to let Sasha and Malia clean up after themselves mm-hmm. and clean their own rooms because you know she was like, I we're not going to be here forever, and yep. like I'm not going to have my daughters leave this and not know how to make their bed. Like, yeah. that's crazy. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like this was... Because prior to this, you had the Bushes in the White House. Yeah. And their legacy, right? Like, they, his father was president. He'd spent time in the White House. He'd grown up in the White House. Um, so there was this level of kind of, like, prestige, privilege. Yeah, more of
1: an old-school American type of White House right. administration
0: where you have like Michelle who grew up on the South side of Chicago in a working class family. So it was a completely different vibe. So during the first few months as First Lady, she visited homeless shelters and soup kitchens. She hosted a White House reception for women's rights advocates and weighed in on matters for the Department of Housing and Urban Development and Department of Education. And some people praised her knowledge of law and legislative abilities, while others thought it wasn't the First Lady's place Mm -hmm. to be so involved in politics. I mean, we've
1: seen this before. Yeah, that's typically the problem with with a lot of these first ladies and the, the woman I'm talking about is going to have some of those issues as well. But a lot of times if there's even a slight involvement or even just political knowledge, uh, the administration, the people in the white house and a lot of like the more conservative members of our country typically feel a bit uneasy about that because they think that the president's not actually doing his job. The wife is, you know, and we couldn't have that. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, and, I think I talked about it when I talked about Eleanor
0: Roosevelt, you know, she was the first one to kind of take up a cause as a first lady up until that point. I mean, the first lady's job was to run the household, just like the woman's job in a in a family was to run the household. So it was like you can decorate for Christmas and you can pick out the curtains, but we don't want your opinion on, you know, anything to do with education or housing. Yeah,
1: like Like, stay in your lane policy.
0: (laughs) Right. So she also started initiatives targeted um at battling childhood obesity which you know it was part of that Let's Move uh, yeah. initiative which was huge and got a lot of backlash for reasons I can't even remember now. I can't
1: remember uh, either. I just I remember her rapping about turnips. Oh, that yeah. lives rent-free in my brain forever.
0: Great mom energy, mm-hmm. good mom joke energy. So you know this this initiative was targeted at battling childhood obesity by providing healthier foods to school kids and encouraging exercise programs. And she also um, started a program for girls' education and advocated on behalf of military families. That became a huge thing for her throughout um, her time in the White House, which is something I didn't really know. But uh-huh. she developed very close relationships. With a lot of military families and worked hard to advocate on their behalf.
1: That's wonderful. Um,
0: Yeah, I mean, especially since we still had so many people overseas during the
1: Obama administration. Yeah, that's the thing is I think it's, it's a different priority nowadays, I feel like. But at the time when she was first becoming the first lady... We were still very, very, very much at war and trying to bring troops home, and there was a lot of that. We were there was a lot of anxiety in the country surrounding yes, that. Yeah. So the fact that she gave her support at that time to the families who were probably very frustrated and scared is is a really wonderful thing for her to do. Yeah,
0: for sure. Uh, So, during the 2008 campaign, Michelle was seen as the least famous of the candidates' wives and was largely seen as pretty unlikable uh, in that first campaign. Like, when she broke 50%, uh, like, likability during that first campaign, it was, like, a big deal. Oh, my God. So you know it she was kind of, she kind of had her work cut out for her but by the 2012 re-election campaign Michelle was deemed by most commentators to be the most popular member of the Obama administration <laughs> her poll numbers had not dropped below 60% since entering the white house and some even went so far as to say that Michelle was the most popular political figure in America wow. uh, in 2012 so it was a big deal she'd you know really come up which is Crazy yeah. hard to do, yeah. you know, because as we've seen in this country, people do not like opinionated, smart women, no. period. And then black women have it even
1: harder. Yeah, then so. you really can't be opinionated, you know? Mm
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barack struggled slightly during his re-election campaign, and it was actually Michelle who humanized him to voters. She went on, you know, the campaign with him and, like, did a lot of press relaying stories about her husband to the public. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, kind of funny, like how we met stories. And she does have a way of communicating that feels very personal yeah. and is very, very likable. Uh, towards the end of Barack's second term, there was widespread speculation that Michelle would run office herself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we talked about it on this podcast. Oh, we wanted it. We wanted it bad. (laughs) Always, always. Uh, A 2015 Rasmussen poll found that Michelle had more support for the 2016 to become the 2016 Democratic candidate than Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Like when they pulled people, they were like, I would rather see Michelle.
1: Oh, 100. That is like a no brainer to me. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think at that point. Everybody was on such a high with the Obama administration. Max actually said earlier too. He was like, "I bet if Biden had run in 2016, he would have yeah, possibly possible. been." Like, I wonder if he would have been the candidate. I don't know. It's
0: interesting. Could have. Yeah. Could have. Could have. Would have. Should have. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but once again, Michelle is not a fan of poli- is yeah. not a fan of politics. So in the epilogue to becoming, um, she writes, "quote I have no intention of running for office ever." <laughs> she says politics can be a means for positive change, but this arena is just not for me. Yeah, and I, and I get it. God I mean, know she your place. Yeah, you know it. You yeah, know your strengths. Throughout the documentary, both she and her mom, her mom was actually asked, like, do you miss going to the White House? And she was like, God, no. Like, I, I think that they really didn't thrive under that kind of scrutiny. And they did it because they genuinely thought that, like, this was the best thing for the country, that yeah. they could do a lot of good. I'm not speaking for Barack, because I think that this was an ambition for him. And I think he enjoys politics to a certain extent. Definitely. But Michelle... Michelle, for her sake, I I don't think, I think she was being very supportive because she genuinely believes in her husband. Right. You know, Yeah,
1: but it's not her world. It's not her thing. Yes. Yeah, but I think that, you know, it sounds like through that role, she was able to start to discover what her thing is. You know, even though she wasn't in the place, you know, politically, you know, that wasn't her thing. But, you know, working with kids and doing those things that she's passionate about uh, probably helped her grow a lot
0: totally I mean I think that that's why she calls her book in this documentary becoming mm-hmm. because I think she is still becoming who she is exactly you know who, yeah. she, who she's going to be and I think that she recognizes that she doesn't have to be in politics to do a lot of good yeah you know and Definitely. she's got this incredible platform now to be able to do that um So she strongly endorsed Hillary Clinton as the 2016 Democratic nominee and highly and very publicly criticized then-candidate Donald Trump, which she continued to do, continues to do uh, through to this day. And guess what? She made it known that she did not like that man. And guess what her and Barack did when he won? Facilitated a peaceful transition of power. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, I (laughs) attended the inauguration. I remember... Melania and Trump coming up to the White House and that like literal oh so awkward it was so awkward it really was terrible it was truly terrible fringe
0: Um, After leaving the White House, Michelle has continued her advocacy work. She tours schools and meets with children about their goals and aspirations. Um, She continues to work to increase nutritional standards for school lunches and pushes for inclusion for women in tech companies and in politics. Love it. She released her memoir, Becoming, in 2018. It sold 10 million copies in the first four months. Wow. Wow. In May of 2020, her documentary of the same name was released on Netflix. Go watch it. Um, And she really reminds me a lot, actually, having watched this documentary. And I, you know, have just watched The Crown. And I watched the Diana in her own words. And I did all that. They're very different, like, personalities as far as, like, I feel like Michelle is more outgoing. Yeah. But but the The way that they... Yeah, the way that they interact with the public, yes. I feel like, um, feels very similar. Like, you know, Diana was the people's princess, and I really feel like Melania is, like, the people's first lady. Excuse like, me, did you just say
1: Melania is the people's... <gasps> <gasps> oh,
0: my God, I just woke my cat up. I just yelled so loud. You oh, my God, gross. just said... No, 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 because here, here, listen. This is why I said that, because the sentence that I wrote right here in my notes says a people's first lady. How strange to go from her to Melania who could not be further removed. (laughs) So I was reading
1: my notes. They're both (laughs) M names. I get it. But I and I knew I knew what you did when you did it. But it was still shocking to the ears. Oh, God, no. Shocking to the
0: ears. They could not be further removed. (laughs) Like Melania is so cold. And there's this warmth that emanates off of Michelle. Yes, And you you can put a picture of her visiting a hospital next to a picture of Princess Diana visiting a hospital and it feels very warm. There's that or like when I was watching her sign books for people and these people are like crying and they're telling her, you know, their personal stories and they're like, I'm the first person in my family to go to college or whatever and She's telling them, like, I'm proud of you. She's holding their hand. She's taking their time, her time with them. Yeah. And she says, you know, she says, like, you have to be ready to approach each person where they're at. You don't look away. You make sure that your focus is on this person I do remember and you're that really
1: listening to them. I remember that from the documentary, her saying, like, to you, you've seen 100 people today, but they've been waiting all day to see you. And you need to remember that. And I thought that was a really cool yeah. Cool and it
0: feels very, very real yeah. when she's talking to them. So um so yeah, that's Michelle Obama. There she is. I know that there's you could watch the documentary, you could read the book, there's a million other places you could get the information. Yes. But I just really wanted to talk about her today. Definitely. So So there
1: you go. Well, awesome. (laughs) Um, I'm going to be going back a little bit, but not too, too far. Um, I'm going to be talking about Miss Betty Ford today. Okay. And I went deep. Um, I had almost 20 pages of notes that I cut way down. Um, I got a lot of information from... Just a biography about her on firstladies.org is where I got most of the information. And then I also watched a PBS documentary as well. And it was really great because I got really into these different websites and then, you know, all my side googs and things like that. And it got way too long. So I watched this documentary to kind of help me, like, condense her life story into more manageable uh, things, you know? I'll tell you, firstladies.org
0: is dense like I remember when I did Eleanor Roosevelt I got a lot of my information off of there and that's part of why it took so long because it's like do you want to know every detail
1: about this person's life we'll tell you literally they know everything and I don't know how like I went deep so I am going to Get this moving. All right. So Betty Ford was born Elizabeth Ann Bloomer, April 8th, 1918 in Chicago, Illinois. She was the third. Oh, two Chicago girls. Well, she was born in Chicago. She didn't live there for very long. Her dad was a salesman and moved around a lot, but she was born in Chicago. Uh, She was the third child and the only daughter. So she had two older brothers named Robert and William, and they were five and eight years older than her. So definitely had that, like older brother kind of more of like a rough and tumble childhood like she wasn't like this sweet little innocent girl like she very much like got along with her brothers and had that kind of tomboyish I guess attitude her parents mm-hmm. were Hortense and William Bloomer like I said her father was a traveling salesman for and he worked for Royal Rubber Company They lived a fairly comfortable life. Her mom did come from some money, but, um, you know, with her father's job, you know, there was food on the table and things like that. But unfortunately, her dad was gone a lot for work, which really affected Betty, who was very, very close to her father and really, really loved her dad. When Betty was older, she started looking into her ancestry and she was wondering if she was related to Amelia Jenks Bloomer, who was a 19th century suffragette, temperance and abolitionist who also popularized pants or bloomers for women. Is that where their last name came? Oh, so, I'm so dumb. Okay, so, right? I was like, and they, they say that's why they call pants bloomers is because of this amelia bloomer who was this like suffragette abolitionist woman so um she looked into it and i have an archives account so i pay for like a certain ancestry thing so i can put anybody's name in and find their history so i put in um amelia jenks bloomers information and i put in betty ford's information they are not related Uh, unfortunately but i did i was able to kind of trace back and i was comparing the different years and things like that and i'm like no they're not they were in two completely different parts of the world like their families there's no way they're related like this isn't the thing but i thought that was really cool that she had this like attachment to someone like amelia bloomer who was this you know women's rights activist, which is very much something that she would become as she would go forward in her life. The Bloomer family lived in Denver, Colorado shortly when Betty was a baby, but then when she was two years old, they moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she would spend most of her life. Her childhood friend Lillian, who we meet in the PBS documentary, who I adore, said that Said that Betty basically had no filter, and she called Betty a quote solid character. So you know exactly like what kind of. I love old timey like phrases like that because you know exactly what they
0: mean. Yes, right. She was a
1: very solid character. And much of that probably attributed to the fact that her mother was a very independent woman. You know, her father worked a lot and the mother, you know, very much took charge of being both, you know, mother and father to the kids. And she saw her mom as being very much a role model then, as she would, you know, later on in her life as well. So when she was 11, there were some uh, tough times with money in the family during the Wall Street crash of 1929. So she began modeling and teaching dance lessons to children to earn money. And she loved dance. Dance was like her life. She started dancing when she was young and she kept dancing through high school. In the documentary, she says that she fell in love with dance and she had a special interest in modern dance. And she liked it so much because it was very expressive. It was all about your emotions and interpreting the music and things like that. And she was definitely one to speak her mind and be sensitive and emotional. Lillian the friend again says that she was very popular with the boys. She laughed and said that she always hoped that there would be a guy left for her when Betty was around. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So Betty was also a bit of a rebel as a teenager. She started smoking really young. She had her first alcoholic drink when she was 14. Like she was a total rebel. But on the other side of that, her mother had always worked with children with disabilities at a place called the Mary Free Bed Home for Crippled Children. And so Betty would go along with her mother and help children with disabilities as well, starting at a very young age. Tragedy struck the family in 1932 when her father suddenly passed away from carbon monoxide poisoning in the family's garage while working under their car. Oh, my God. That's terrible. Yes. He was two days away or he was one day away from being 60. Betty was 16 years old. And there was some speculation due to the matter of death. There was some speculation that it could have been a suicide. Um, but the the garage door was open in a way it's a very bizarre thing. Um, the official cause of death was accidental asphyxiation. But Betty was very, very close to her dad and says in the documentary that, you know, especially the age that she was, it was it was really hard on her to lose her dad. Uh, and then it was actually at the funeral that her mother told her that her father was an alcoholic, which was another really big revelation to her and a, a really hard thing for her to come to terms with, especially after her dad's death.
0: You know what? I bet a lot of traveling salesmen were alcoholics. Yeah. Back oh, yeah. Then because it was just like you were never at home with your family. I imagine it got lonely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. That makes Definitely. sense so after her father died to support the children uh, and the rest of her family, Betty's mom worked as a real estate agent, which Betty named as an example in shaping her views of equal pay for women and equal policy issues. She said her mother showed her how independent a woman could be if she wanted to be. After Betty graduated high school in 19... 1936? Yeah, I guess that's right. She was born in 1918. I think I was still in, like, Michelle, Michelle Obama, where I was like, that's... You're like that. Seems like a long, a time, long ago. time ago. Long time ago, she graduated high school in 1936, and she really wanted to continue her studies in dance in New York City. And she had spent some time in New York City, but her mother was very apprehensive about that and refused to let her like go and live in New York City. Um, So they kind of compromised, and Betty decided to go to the Bennington School of Dance in Bennington, Vermont. And Bennington was a much more progressive school than what she was used to in her day-to-day life in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So this was a time for her um, that she started kind of opening her worldviews a little bit more. It was there that she began studying under Martha Graham, who is a legendary... Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Yes! Martha Graham, Martha Graham. She was the director at Juilliard for like 35 years. She is like a legendary dancer. And Betty was one of her students. And it's really funny because Betty said that she got told off a lot because she was like really social. And so Martha would always have to like yell at her in class. I've never felt more seen, uh, not even in school. Like I was the worst uh, ballet student ever because I had to take ballet for skating, but I hated it and my teachers totally knew it. I never had a ballet teacher that liked me and they were horrible to me. They would straight up, they yell at you. Like ballet teachers are dicks. So I'm like, I I get you. Like it's fucking tough when you just want to like, you're like, whatever, like it's fun. I'm just with my friends. They're barking at you. That was me at school. It was just like, I'm here to
0: hang out with friends. Like, we need to separate again. Yeah, but I was like, it doesn't matter where you move me. Like, I'm going to have a conversation with whoever I'm sitting with. I will sing to myself.
1: Thank you very much. Like, (laughs) you could put me in a room by myself, and I will be a disturbance, I swear. So... Betty's mom was still very apprehensive about Betty's choice of career, you know, was kind of pressuring her to come home and maybe start a family and things like that. So Betty did come home for about six months and really wanted to go back to New York. But once she got back to Michigan, she kind of got into, you know, the routine and she did become happy there. Her mother remarried, and Betty lived with the couple for a bit. And then she got a job as an assistant to a fashion coordinator for the local department store and organized her own dance group and taught classes again. The studio was called Betty Bloomer Dance School, and she earned 50 cents per student. Oh, God. I know, right? I mean, that's what is it, 1940 something time? 30 like something yeah, time? Early 40s. Yeah. In a 1987 interview, she mentioned. That not only were her mother and dance teacher, Martha Hill, her role models and influences, she also named Eleanor Roosevelt, who caught her attention as another woman who spoke her mind and had individuality. Well, look at that. Look at that. So before Betty was married to Gerald Ford, she was married to a man by the name of William G. Warren, and they got married in 1942. William was much like her father, worked as a salesman. He sold insurance for a living, and the two had actually known each other since they were 12 years old. The marriage occurred during and after World War II, and Warren wasn't drafted because he was diagnosed with diabetes. The couple moved a lot as William went from job to job. He also was an alcoholic, so this made it really hard for him to, like, keep a job. And so she really didn't have a very stable life and was moving around a lot. And it doesn't sound like it was a very happy marriage at all because... Not long after, she was kind of starting to talk about separation and divorce. But then, because of his alcoholism, he had really poor health. And just after Betty had started to file for divorce, he went into a coma. Oh, Jesus. Yes. So he was in a coma for two years where she lived in her mother-in-law's, like, upper bedroom to help take care of him. She, Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, she was, like fuck this guy, I'm going to divorce him. And then he gets in a coma for two years. She's like stuck with the man. Um, She gets another job and that is when she started really noticing the pay discrepancy between men and women when she was having to kind of support the family rather than her husband doing it. And that started to really piss her off. So as soon as her husband awoke from his coma two years later, she's like, goodbye. Deuces, I'm out of here. Uh, they were officially divorced on September 22nd, 1947. So they were married for like five years. Two of those years, he was in a coma. So <laughs> the divorce was actually granted, though, on the grounds of extensive and repeated cruelty. So it sounds like it was a very, very emotionally abusive, detrimental marriage and not healthy at all quick fun fact. Betty was the third presidential wife whose first marriage had ended in divorce, following Rachel Donaldson, who was Andrew Jackson's wife, and Florence King Harding, who was Warren Harding's wife. So there's only it's been so three. weird.
0: Because, again, like we've been watching the crown and it's like divorce is such a big deal I to know. the crown. And over here for the presidency, we're like, eh, we don't give a fuck. Well,
1: I mean, at this time, that was something that was a concern, especially because I don't think I've mentioned this yet. Betty Ford is a Republican. Yes, I did know that. Yes, So I feel like I should have started with that. She's a Republican, by the way, but she has been referred to throughout her life as being like the glorious dynamo of the Republican Party. Like it's a very different world than what we know of right now. (laughs) So keep that in mind. So let's talk a little bit about Gerald Ford, who I refer to as Jerry throughout my notes because that's what she called him. And to date, Gerald Ford lived longer than any U.S. president dying at the age of 93. Another little Have fact. you seen um, young pictures of Gerald Ford? Um, I have in my notes about how much of a hottie he is. Yeah, he was, like, super hot. He looks like the perfect Bachelor <laughs> contestant. Yes. Like, but he was so a he's, football he's player, hot. like...
0: Yeah, he's hot in a way that I'm like I don't know if he's necessarily my type because he's very like all American Mm -hmm. hot. But like I remember seeing he was on one of those lists of like hot presidents, like presidents you didn't know were hot. Yeah, and they showed a picture of him like playing football, and I was like,
1: oh, oh, okay, (laughs) save to photos. Um, Yeah, he he was a babe. So fun fact: his real name is Leslie Lynch King.
0: Oh, he was like, we got to change that before I run for office. Yeah, well,
1: there was some there was some remarrying and stuff going on. It's kind of an interesting story. So he was born in Omaha, Nebraska, but like Betty, grew up mostly in Grand Rapids, Michigan. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the Navy. Ford grew up in a very abusive household, later telling his biographer that his father had a history of hitting his mother. So that was something that he had to witness as a child. One story from the biography of Ford states a time during the separation of his parents that his father took a butcher knife and threatened to kill days old Leslie and his nurse. So when Gerald Ford was a baby. Yeah, like horrible, horrible man. Um, Luckily, his mother remarried another man named Gerald Rudolph Ford in 1917. Uh, Leslie, still his name at the time, was officially adopted by Gerald, and they started calling Leslie Gerald as well after that. Just kind of started calling him that, but he wouldn't officially change his name until December 3rd, 1935. So Gerald was actually not told about his biological father until he was 17 years old. And he had no idea that he had like a ton of half siblings, too. So his mother must have left his father and remarried when he was very young before he really remembers a lot of that stuff.
0: The same year. Let me just go on record with saying you got to tell your kids this shit. Like you really do.
1: 100%.
0: I feel like people try to protect their kids by not wanting to tell them this stuff and I'm like they especially now in the day of the internet like they're going to find out. Yeah. You should just tell them the truth, let them process it.
1: Totally. I mean, luckily for Gerald Ford though, his adopted father sounds amazing and treated his mother really well and it sounds like he after that had a really really great life. So he had a really rough go of it to start, but after that it sounds like he had a fairly a fairly good childhood. So the, the pair met before Betty's divorce was finalized in August of 1947 through mutual friends. Betty and Jerry were like yin and yang, but in the best way. Betty was loud and outspoken and opinionated, and Gerald was like cool and laid back and even keeled. So they, you know, they balance each other out very, very well. Once Betty was single, they started dating. And this is what I write. Gerald Ford was hot when he was young. But also, Betty was a stunner. Like she's a babe. She was a yeah. babe. And talking about fashion, like, I was looking at um, her husband's inaugural address, and she's wearing this, like, bright red, what I would assume is a dress, was, like, a turtleneck top with, like, exact matching lipstick. Like, it is perfect to a T like I don't know if she would necessarily be a fashion icon like Michelle Obama and Jackie O but she is stylish though Gorg- and she's
0: well put together oh my all gosh the time. just yeah. like
1: your perfect 1950s housewife look but like also a little more fun You know, she definitely had her own kind of like very colorful style and things like that. And one thing that is really amazing is that Jerry really loved how outspoken Betty was. That was something that he always really encouraged her to do and something that he always really encouraged his kids to do, too. So it wasn't like he felt intimidated by his wife's personality and presence and things like that. According to Betty, he proposed to her in the fall of 1947, but Jerry says it was February of 1948. And I'm inclined to believe Betty because Jerry had some reason to hide parts of his personal life. So he hadn't really mentioned it to Betty, but he had aspirations in politics. So when he was proposing to her, he was like, there's something I have to do first. So after they had gotten engaged and he opened up about his political aspirations, Betty says that she wasn't really all that concerned because she didn't think that he would win. Like she didn't think that he would actually (laughs) become a governor or anything or get into the House. So she was like, "Okay, whatever. But she really thought that uh, her being a divorced woman would basically put a red X over his name and make him ineligible to be in politics. So she really worried about how her past would affect her husband's career choices as well. And it's really funny. In the documentary, her son Steve told PBS that she said if she had known, she never would have married a politician. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Two women who don't love politics. Exactly. The couple married at Grace Episcopal Church in Grand Rapids two weeks after he won the Republican nomination and shortly before the general election. In fact, he had to leave the rehearsal dinner early in order to make a speech at a previously scheduled campaign event, and at the day of the wedding, he showed up late, and his shoes were so dusty from campaigning at a nearby farm. Yeah, so he's wearing like a black suit, they said, but his shoes were so dusty they looked brown and didn't match his suit. This is your wedding, sir. This is your wedding, and I love this. So Betty wore a very simple dress, which she only spent fifty dollars on, which is great. So oh, that's cute. That, in nineteen forty-eight dollars. In today' dollars, it would be more, but back then, she spent fifty dollars on her cute little dress. Their honeymoon was actually just on the campaign trail. They went to different places in Michigan. Romantic. I know, right? They went to a University of Michigan football game. And then they, I can't remember who was giving the speech, but they went to like this remote, cold, isolated part of Michigan to watch some guy give a speech. And Betty was like, it was the worst. Like, that was not my cup of tea. But it all paid off because on November 2nd, 1948, Jerry was elected to the first of his 12 consecutive terms as a U.S. congressman. So sorry, Betty, you didn't get your wish. That's a lot of terms as a congressman, too. I know, it's a lot. So they did move to Washington after that for a bit when he was sworn in, and Betty immediately began to educate herself in the political process. She began attending hearings, learning the names and positions of powerful legislative figures, and once followed the entire process of how a bill becomes a law. She joined the Congressional Club, which was a social club for the spouses of current and former House members, and it was there that she met and became close friends with Lady Bird Johnson.
0: Uh-huh. Ladybird, Ladybird, that's
1: the name of our family's dog. Oh, really? Ladybird, isn't mm-hmm. that um, it's King of the Hill too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Betty and Jerry had four kids together: Michael, John, Stephen, and Susan. Betty was very open about the fact that she never spanked or hit her children, believing that there were better and more constructive ways of disciplining children. Ahead of her time, very ahead of her time. So they lived in D.C. until 1955 until Jerry won his fourth term. And then they went to Virginia and built a home there in Crown View Drive in Alexandria, just over the river from Washington. So fun fact, this is where Thomas Kale, the director of Hamilton, is from. This like little oh, area in Virginia, which is it's literally it's just like boop, right over the river from Washington. So he didn't have to go very far for work, but it was still far enough away that they could kind of have like their their family area, you know? Gerald was very, very popular and up and coming when he got into politics, and he was noticed by a lot of people that were above him who really took him under their wing, and they kind of expected him to spend his whole career in the house. Like, he was really, really loved on both sides of the aisle. Like, none of this reaching across the aisle stuff. Like, he was genuinely, like, friends with both Democratic and Republican senators and governors and things like that. So he was just all around really, really just liked by everybody. Like they didn't really have anything bad to say about him. Just a nice dude. Really, really good guy. Yeah. But like I said, they kind of thought that he would always just stay in the House. But Jerry really had this dream of becoming Speaker of the House one day. So to do that, he had to do a lot more campaigning and a lot more work, which means he had to be away from home a lot more often. for I'm sure. Exactly. It really reminded her a lot of her father growing up and reportedly he was gone over half of the year one time when he was campaigning. It's just, it's crazy. It's crazy how much work that job an effort that job takes, you know what I mean? And time away from your loved ones. So much like her mother, Betty took on the role of kind of both mother and father for her kids. She was like the den mother for her kids' uh, Boy Scouts, and she was the Sunday school teacher. She was a member of the Parent Teacher Association. She drove carpool for Little League practices and took her daughter to dance classes. So she was like super, 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 super busy. Super mom. Super mom. But I do want to mention she had help. She did have a black woman who was a housekeeper named Clara Powell. And you know, I Googled that shit right away. I was like, Betty Ford racism. Betty Ford. Like, I was like, please yeah, tell like, me. Let's check all this shit. From what I've read, and I believe me when I tell you I Googled this shit, because I didn't want to have another instance where I, like, basically... Studied an entire human being and then figured out they were just a piece of shit the entire time. So listen, I did a I did a
0: feminist fave on Ellen. So <laughs> look, mistakes were made.
1: Mistakes were made. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. That is hilarious. That did not age well.
0: No, as soon as all this stuff came out, I was like, well, Damn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do we just keep it up like what do we do
0: well I mean all of that stuff is still true I mean she was groundbreaking in a lot of ways she was but... she was
1: she was uh yeah people who are listening to us like not in time with when we're posting them though will be like what the fuck like why aren't you mentioning any of the problematic stuff well when they get to this episode there you go we they'll know. know they'll figure it out According to Betty's biographer on the Gerald Ford Foundation's website, Clara, who was the housekeeper, was hired in 1949 and was essentially like a member of their extended family for 20 years. Like there's lots of pictures of them all together, and it does seem like it was a very normal, healthy work environment, but I had to make sure. Uh, Betty, now that she had so much responsibility that her husband was gone, she was incredibly overwhelmed a few months after her husband's promotion to house minority leader in january of 1965 she injured herself raising a window one day pinching a nerve on the left side of her neck which resulted in horrible muscle spasms which girl i've been there it's awful i've got such a bad neck and back and muscle spasms and pinched nerves are no joke um and because of that she would get this like she had like this weird kind of like sensory not really paralysis but like her nerves started kind of behaving differently in her neck and she would get a really numb and stiff neck shoulder and arm she started suffering from arthritis and it was really really constant constant pain so because of this she spent two weeks in the hospital during the summer of 1964 with the amount of pain that she was in her doctors prescribed her with various pain medications such as valium to manage her symptoms So I was going to go briefly into kind of the history of just like giving people lots of prescription medication when they really don't need it. But I think for the sake of time, I am going to skip over that. So of course, Betty then developed a dependency on these prescribed drugs. If there is one image that comes to mind or one thing that comes to your mind when you say Betty Ford, it's the clinic, you know, it's, it's the drug clinic. So hearing the backstory to how she was inspired to open the clinic is, is really inspiring. Uh, she kept her dependency a secret for a very, very long time. And sounds like she was really in denial about um, how many pills she was taking and her dependency on them and things like that. But she was stretched really thin and the pills were the things that helped her get through the day. She was also battling a lot of depression and other, you know, mental health challenges. She felt like her husband was out there being somebody and she felt like a nobody and she was just left behind, which I can completely understand. In the documentary she says I hated feeling crippled. So I took more pills. I now know that some of the pain I was trying to wash out was emotional. Which is like, yes, like that is why people get addicted to drugs and alcohol. Like there's it's all it's all in your psyche. It's all I mean, there are other factors and things like that. But so much of it are
0: especially insidious because You start taking them because you are actually in pain. They are prescribed to you by a doctor. Uh There's a reason for you to be taking them. And then it becomes very, 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 very easy to justify taking more of them because you're in pain. And you're like, well, I'll just up my dosage. And then by the time maybe you realize that potentially there is a problem here you have an actual physical dependency. Right, and well, and this is, the off 19, of that-
1: this is the 1960s. Like, it wasn't even regulated really about w- what taking these painkillers could do to your body or what it could do to your mind and the dependency. Like, it just really, there wasn't enough information about it anyways for that to even be a concern. So yeah, at that point, it was probably to her, like, taking Tylenol. You know, the doctors yeah. gave it to me, w- whatever. In 1965, she suffered from a severe and seemingly inexplicable inexplicable collapse into crying her daughter Susan found her sobbing uncontrollably and of course this was dubbed a nervous breakdown and then Betty decided that she would go to a psychiatrist for help and she met with this psychiatrist once a week for the next two years which she said was a really great thing she became very very open about you know the benefits of getting psychiatric help and the one thing that she really wasn't very open with about her psychi- with her psychiatrist was her addiction to prescription drugs and the fact that she had started drinking more and more alcohol. The main thing that they were discussing was kind of um, essentially what the topic of The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan is, you know, that the the worn out housewife that felt that feels like she should be more and wants to be more. And she really felt uh connected to that mentality. And so, I mean, during this time it was a perfect time for Betty to kind of start feeling liberated and getting the mental health help that she needed. I think really helped her become more sure of herself and confident before she would go on to the into this next very public phase of her life. With her alcohol, I do want to add for most of the 60s and 70s, her drinking wasn't a very obvious problem to her family. Jerry began to discuss leaving politics when Nixon was elected. The president was Republican, but they didn't have the majority of the House and the Senate, so Jerry thought his ambitions of becoming the House Speaker would never come to fruition, and he considered retirement. This, of course, made Betty very happy, and Jerry had become more and more aware of his wife's needs at this time and saw that he needed to be more attentive. So it kind of seemed like for the family at that time that retirement was... You know, in their future, once Nixon's term was over, you know, they were going to move on with their lives and go on to another endeavor. But then on October 10th, 1973, Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned and pleaded no contest to criminal charges of tax evasion and money laundering. And he got the fuck out of the White House. Uh, Nixon had asked advice about who his replacement should be. And unanimously, everybody advised him to go with Gerald Ford. Because like I said, both sides of the aisle, everybody loved him. This was the one guy that he was like, no one's going to combat me on this. Everybody's going to say, sure, I need to get this process moving. So he went with Gerald Ford. In the documentary, they interview Betty and one of her kids about what it was like when she got the call that her husband was going to be vice president. And this is what Betty says. I had been in my slacks, usual, getting dinner ready for the family, and my husband had come home to have dinner. Then he was planning to go back to the White House for that announcement. So then the son says that the Secretary of State, Alexander Haag, was on the line letting... Uh, Jerry know that Nixon was going to be calling him very shortly and asking him to be the vice president and letting them know that the couple had to be in D.C. in two hours to be introduced to the country. And Betty was not pleased.
0: (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. No, two hours is barely enough time for me to get ready for anything.
1: She was in her slacks cooking dinner, Keegan. She was not prepared to become the second lady. So Jerry was sworn in on October 12th, 1973, and this was the first time that the vice president vacancy provision of the 25th Amendment had been implemented. We've been hearing a bit about the 25th Amendment recently. Betty said that at his inauguration, she was in awe, and she said that she felt very important alongside her husband. So while all of this is going on, the Watergate scandal is also unfolding. So the long and the short of it, Watergate links the president's staff and the president himself to a break-in at the Democratic National Convention Committee headquarters and the fact that the president was covering it up and all of this kind of stuff. So there was a lot of distrust in our country's leaders and No. No. Yeah, it was it was complete chaos. So during Her husband's confirmation hearings, Betty was forthright with reporters about having sought psychiatric care and spoke about how Jerry had come with her for two of her appointments, not for himself, of course, but to care for his wife because we're still in the 1960s here. And then she became the second lady, and she then had a very visible public profile, basically overnight. In an interview with Barbara Walters in 1973, she first disclosed her support of the 1973 Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade. And this wasn't as ridiculous as it sounds now, because now if we were to see a Republican woman, you know talking about how great Roe v. Wade was and the fact that women should have the right to abortion uh, would be ludicrous now to see. But there is there are lots of other examples of Republican feminists at the time. Just for an example, Jill Ruckenhouse, where if you am I saying her? No, it's Ruckles Ruc-les, Ruckles House. Ruckleshaus. No clue. Oh, God, I didn't even like I wrote it and I hadn't said it out loud. And I was like, that is a nightmare. Uh, but she was played by Elizabeth Banks on the show Mrs. America. Oh, if you've okay. seen it. Mm-hmm. So she was another like Republican, but like in with Gloria Steinem and like very feminist and into the women's liberation movement and actually worked very hard to kind of push the more conservative side to be more liberal and try to help other, you know, Republican women understand why the women's liberation movement was important. And Betty Ford was very much a part of that as well. Uh, In another interview, she was asked what she thought about the women's liberation movement. And this is what she said. I would say I am for women's lib because I very strongly, a woman should certainly receive equal pay or equal compensation as any man would. And then she smiles and says, I think I'm a feminist, really. It's the oh, wow. cutest That's thing. Cute. She's like, she's a little older at this point, And she just has this adorable little smile and chuckle and just, I'm a feminist. Like, it was just this cute, cute thing. But very, like, so strong in her convictions, so open. Um, when the media broke the news that Betty was a divorcee, They said they opened it up like it was some dirty secret. But then once she commented openly about it, it actually started gaining her more admirers and people started to be able to relate to her more. So her husband was only in office for two months and 11 days when the chief of staff, Hag once again contacted Ford to tell him to prepare for the presidency. While the Watergate scandal and rumors of a potential Ford presidency were swirling, Betty stayed both devoted to supporting her husband and her good friend, Pat Nixon, very publicly. But privately, there was some drama. Following the murder of Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother, Alberta Williams King, Betty felt it was vital for the administration to express their concern directly with the public, but the president's staff disagreed. In defiance, she took it upon herself to schedule her attendance at Miss Alberta King's funeral as a representative of the administration. The administration also openly opposed federally funded daycare, another hot topic of feminist issues at the time, but Betty stated her full support for the cause. At this point, Betty, Jerry, and the kids were still living in Virginia, not having moved into the vice president's residence yet. Their home would actually serve as the presidential residence for the first two weeks of the Ford administration. He was sworn in on August. 9th, 9th? 9th. <laughs> he was sworn in on August ninth, 1974, and automatically assumed the presidency. In his inaugural address, Gerald was the first president to ever make reference to his wife by saying, "I am indebted to no man and only one woman, my dear wife, Betty, as I begin this very difficult job." This made him the only person to become president without having been previously voted in by the electoral college. Like, this is insane. This man was voted to be a congressman and right, somehow and it became just escalated our president. Quickly. Yeah, escalated real fast. So quickly. So, to comment on that in his speech, he said, I am acutely aware that you did not elect me as your president by your ballots. And so, I ask you to confirm me as your president with your prayers. All right, let's talk a little bit about Betty Ford as the First Lady. I personally think that, like, Betty's fascinating stories happened before she was even First Lady. Uh, That's the part that's really interesting to me. Yeah. But she was a very rad First Lady when she was living in the house, when her husband became president, she didn't seem daunted by the prospect of being first lady and was openly committed to expressing her point of view, even though it wasn't common for the first lady to do so. So Pat Nixon, her friend, who was the prior first lady, was known as being the most disciplined and composed first lady in history. Like, sounds like so much fun, you know? But by contrast, Betty was described. Mrs. Ford's impact on American culture may be far wider and more lasting than that of her husband, who served 896 days, much of it spent trying to restore the dignity of the office of the president. I freaking bet. Yeah. She was a symbol of the cultural and political times that she lived in. And I wrote, she gives me Michelle Obama vibes in moments. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. In moments like dancing the bump along the corridors of the White House or wearing a mood ring. And she also got really into CB radios. And her handle was First Mama. And she was oh I love it. She was the first person to ever campaign by CB radio and, you know, be in communication with voters that way. And people were really pissed that she did that. Like they tried to get her FCC license taken away and like, why have her handle change? Because they they were intimidated. I think that this very likable woman was able to communicate with voters that was going to help her husband out. You know what I mean? I think that people just didn't like that she had that sway over the public. She was also the first first lady to ever appear on a sitcom when she was on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh, pretty cool. She argued passionately for the equal rights of women, discussed issues such as drug addiction, abortion, and premarital sex, allowed and without shame. These things were incredibly controversial, as it was during this time that the Republican Party began to lean further and further right. So we are right before Reagan right now. And Reagan is Mm -hmm. when everything went to hell. So we're starting to get that you know, more right wing, very conservative side come down and be more picky on some of the other uh, Republicans and obviously the Democrats. But Betty was never really swayed to hide her opinions. In an interview with 60 Minutes, she said, I feel very strongly that it was the best thing in the world when the Supreme Court voted to legalize abortion and, in my words, to bring it out of the backwoods and put it in the hospitals where it belongs. In a 1975 interview, Betty said that no topic was off limits to her when she was on her radio. She said that she had been asked questions about everything except she was never asked how often she and the president had sex. She added <laughs> she added that her response would be as often as possible. Wow. I know, right? Like damn, Betty. Scandalous. In another interview with 60 Minutes, she openly acknowledged that her kids had smoked marijuana as well, which is like, oh, crazy scandal. She's like, no, they're kids. They smoked weed, whatever. Her candidness made her the enemy of conservative America, like I said, who started calling her no lady instead of first lady and started to demand her resignation. This wasn't a common impression, though, because while you're we talking about approval ratings of Michelle Obama... Her approval rating was at 75%. Yeah, she's chill. She She'll like she's it. She's chill. Uh, she was so popular that during Jerry's 1976 campaign, the most popular sign read, I'm for Betty's husband. She even jokingly said, I would give my life to give Jerry my poll numbers. Well, (laughs) She kind of did. And
0: he must have been a pretty chill dude to be able, like his ego must not have been overwhelming if he was able to deal with that. Because I know a lot of people, a lot of men would not be able to handle their wife being more popular than them.
1: Well, yeah. And also the fact that she discloses so much personal information about their lives. Like, I just feel like people get weird about that in general. So the fact that he was so supportive is amazing. But I also think he had a lot on his plate. (laughs) I don't know, you know, I think he was so concerned with like having the American people trust their president again and try to like clean up the mess that Nixon had created that he probably was just kind of like, honey, do what you're gonna do. Go be a star. In September of 1974, Betty was diagnosed with a malignant breast cancer tumor during a routine mammogram. Two days later, she underwent a mastectomy. Since President I wrote, since President Jerry (laughs) had made it clear to the American people that there was a new era of honesty after Watergate, Betty made the unprecedented decision to be completely forthcoming about her health. When she shared her story, reportedly tens of thousands of women began seeking mammograms. Before this time, many women lived in shame of their breast cancer, and Betty helped break down the stigma of the disease. In 1977, she was appointed by Carter to the Second National Commission on the Observance of International Women's Year. In 1976, so I don't know why I said 77 before 76, uh, but in 76, Jerry ran against Ronald Reagan in the primary for the Republican Party. Ford won the primary, then campaigned in the general race against former Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter. It is thought that Betty alienated conservative Republican voters by obviously siding with the liberal and moderate Republicans. She had also won over anti-Carter Democrats and other undecided voters with her charm and authenticity. What's interesting is that Betty's views were either the same or even more liberal than those of Jimmy Carter's wife, Rosalind Carter. When Jerry lost to Jimmy by a slim margin, it was Betty who gave her husband's concession speech as he was struggling from laryngitis. She was the first and only candidate spouse in history to do so. According to her son, Jack, Betty would read the president's briefing papers and would review them with Jerry when he when they pertain to things that she felt passionate about, primarily anything concerning women. Though she would never admit to this outright, she did once call herself a sounding board and that they would engage in pillow talk on occasion about politics. She would also make revisions to his speeches. She made an influence at the White House as well. While there, she reduced both her family and the public entertaining food costs by serving less expensive food. She was very thrifty. She once said she would rather re-dye a pair of shoes over and over again than continually having to buy new pairs for events. While Betty's role isn't easily defined like other First Ladies, like Jackie O with the White House Renovations or Michelle Obama with her vegetables, overall, Betty Ford is remembered for what she did for women. She opened a National Archives exhibit on the history of women's work. She was the first recipient of the National Women's Party Alice Paul Award, which I think should be called the White Feminist Award just for fun, (laughs) which was given to women who continued to fight for the equality between the sexes. She worked tirelessly for the passing of the Equal Rights Amendment by making phone calls and correspondence with legislators and senators who hadn't yet voted on the amendment. And she actually did end up making a difference in convincing a couple different leaders to vote for the ERA. Uh, she was a big enemy of Phyllis Schlafly. If you want to go back and listen to the episode where I covered her, uh, Phyllis opened this public like smear campaign against the First Lady, and she uh, organized this protest basically outside the gates of the White House where they were picketing to have Betty Ford removed from the White House saying, Betty Ford is trying to press a second rate manhood on American womanhood. Whatever. I
0: fucking hate Phyllis Schlafly. She sucks so much. She
1: sucks so much. But Betty really took the high road whenever she was asked about, you know, the people that were her naysayers. She always just said that she was fighting for their rights as much as she was fighting for her own. She always took the high road. She was also a proponent for women having lives outside of wife and motherhood. She encouraged women to play a larger role in society by getting an education, a career, and showed that you can balance the traditional duties of marriage and motherhood, too, with the things that you really care about. Let's talk about the Betty Ford Center. In 1978, her family finally confronted her about her alcoholism and addiction to prescription medication. In her 1987 memoir, she says, I liked alcohol. It made me feel warm. And I loved pills. They took away my tension and my pain. She then entered treatment for substance abuse. After she began her recovery in 1982, she opened the Betty Ford Center, initially called the Betty Ford Clinic, in Rancho Mirage, California, which is a treatment center for chemical dependency. Apparently, Betty Ford also treats children of alcoholics and those uh, with drug right. dependency. and I, I think they're, they even do more of that now. Like, yeah.
0: I hear a lot more about the Betty Ford family program. Um, I didn't Where like families know that. can go. Yeah. Because I watch like, Intervention, they talk about that a lot where they'll send the family to the Betty Ford family program.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like too that they have, that they work with like just the children, almost like an individual Al Anon or kind of Al Anon situation, which was something that kind of perked my ears up. So if anybody's interested, the phone number for the Betty Ford Center is 866 866- 2308275. Moving on. She served as chair and board of directors. She co-authored a book about her treatment and another book which focuses more on the center itself. In 2015, she relinquished her position on the board to her daughter Susan. Barbara Bush, after discovering Betty's secret of drug dependency through the years, said that Betty, quote, "...transformed her pain into something great for the common good. Because she suffered, there will be more healing. Because of her grief, there will be more joy." She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1991 by President George H.W. Bush and a Congressional Medal in 1999. Through the end of her life, she and Jerry lived in Beaver Creek, Colorado. Jerry died of heart failure at the age of 93 the day after Christmas in 2006. Betty continued to have health struggles the remainder of her life and died of natural causes the day before my birthday in 2011, July 8th, 2011. And like her husband, she was also 93 years old. Wow. And that's Betty Ford.
0: Wow, that's great. I didn't know half of that stuff about her
1: cuz I feel like when you hear about Betty Ford, you do hear about the clinic. You hear about just the clinic. Yeah, and it was I didn't really I didn't really know what her inspiration was behind that or why she was so passionate about it, and I had no idea that she was so involved in the women's liberation movement. I mean, Me I could have There was she was very, very, very involved in the women's lib movement. If I were to just talk about that, I think I would have filled all of my time, even though we went way long. Although I gotta say, we did have a listener message us this week telling me that she liked when we went long. We delivered. <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh, well, that did help me feel a bit better. Are you feeling a little bit good, better, Keegan? I'm glad. Yeah, I am feeling a little bit better. Okay, good. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to another episode. I want to remind you all the deadline is getting closer and closer. Oh my gosh, I need to start posting stuff on Instagram immediately. I might need to push the deadline a little bit for our Ask Me well, Anything. I actually think we have. Do you think we have enough? We
0: probably have enough to put out an episode right now. However, we can use more okay. um, more questions. We could always use more questions. So the day that this episode comes out, it will be the 18th. Oh, shit. So, so that Today is, is the deadline. Deadline, yes. Um, if a few trickle in after that, we will, of course, uh, yeah. still utilize those. But we will be recording our Ask Me Anything episode probably next week. So... Um, make sure you get
1: those into us Definitely. as soon as possible. Yeah.
0: Please.
1: Yes, please do. And you can do so by emailing us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Message us on Facebook. Uh, We also have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page. I've been getting a little bit more active in the group page. Let's keep it going. I'm really enjoying talking to all of you in the comment sections. It's very, very fun. Um, What else? We have a Twitter that we sometimes use, at Yamp Podcast. Why? A N F Podcast Go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts If you haven't already We love it when you do that And you will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday On our Instagram Last but not least if you don't already Skedaddle on over to that Radio Public app And listen to us there It's a free way for you to listen And it helps us out just a little bit With all of that being said We encourage you
0: To rage on Bye